Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and you're listening to the Fairy and Fantasy class. Hello, and welcome to episode 38 of Fairy and Fantasy. This episode covers chapters 18 through 23 of Garth Nix's Sabriel. Okay. Well, I wait for the login screen to appear. Um, I want to... Uh, I want to start with Moggit because we were talking about Moggit last time and we got some new Moggit stuff this time. Especially, I want to look at what the new evidence that we get about Moggit and his relationship with his form. Um, we saw the one time, of course, the one very dramatic instance in which she takes his collar off and we see his true form, his true self, right? Is that true? Well, that's one of the questions. But anyway, we have we get some more information. First, let's just go over our observations here. What do we have? What do we learn about Moggit in today's reading? Basic facts. <coughs> when does he come up? Apart from, you know, making snarky comments, which is his full-time job, but in his off hours. Okay? One thing I noticed about one that was particularly this section, but he behaves very much like a cat. And I wonder if that's just linked with the, the enchantment and being fixed in that form and he's developed the cat-like tendencies? Or... Describe what you mean by the, his cat-like tendencies, example. At one point, um, he gets high on catnip. Ah, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. True, true. Yes. Um... His, uh, his relationship to fish, right? Is that, you know, Sabriel sort of wonders, like, does he even need to eat? I mean, surely he doesn't really require, or she's not even sure if he requires sustenance, but he, he seems to enjoy eating, and he certainly does seem to enjoy eating things cats enjoy eating. Um, so if he's just role-playing a cat, he's doing a good job of it anyway. Um, but it does, and I, I agree, the catnip seems to suggest... <laughs> More than that. More than just role-playing on Moggins' part. Yeah? I found it especially weird to realize that he was playing a cat when, um, after Sabriel finds her father, and she mentions Moggit, and he wonders who that is, and then says, he was always a sort of albino dwarf boy to me. So yeah. it, it, it made me wonder, why does he look like a cat to her? Yeah, I, we... We were kind of, I, very, very understandably, uh, when we were discussing the scene where she takes his collar off and then gets it back on again, we were sort of operating under the assumption that the cat form was the form into which, you know, in which he was imprisoned by this binding, uh, and that the raging free magic elemental form was his true form. But here we learn the cat form is not a form in which he's been imprisoned. It is not part of the binding to make him look like a cat. In fact, he doesn't look like a cat. I mean, that he, he says, that, uh, her father says two things which were, are both kind of surprising. Having come to this as we, you know, based upon the assumptions that we've been making or the, the conclusions we've been making, and he says, who's Moggett, right? Uh, and then he says, I wonder why he chose the form of a cat, right? Apparently it is his choice. Do you remember how Moggett introduced himself? When Sabriel says, who are you? Remember what he says? Along the lines of, I'm many things. Yes, yes. Then he says, that's what he says, I used to be many things, but now I am only several. Oh. 
I used to be many things, but now I am only several. He says at, up front, and he says, you, you, you may call me Mugget. He makes no claim that this is his true name in any sense. And he does seem to suggest from the beginning that he can be several things. Um, now, again, that, that, it was not obvious that that meant that he himself had control over his own shape. Because, of course, it could just be, it could have been merely an allusion to his imprisonment, right? I am on the one that I am right now, I am this, you know, imprisoned cat thing, but I am also this, you know, free magic spirit, and, and, and possibly, but we see, apparently not. No, he actually can be several things, and several with different names. And, and again, this, you know, coming back, um, <laughs> cat ironically, uh, to the thing that you uh, were saying before, is his, his, his cat-like behavior, right? That is, it's his choice. He talks about being imprisoned in a fixed flesh form. And yet that fixed flesh form is apparently not only a tongue twister, but also but fluid, actually. Not fixed in the sense in which it, we were presuming it's fixed, Christine? If he hasn't been a cat for that long, because I think last class we were saying how his his like time as in a cat body sort of put cat characteristics into him or like made some sort of division in a personality. But if he hasn't been a cat for that long and he's like taken up to these characteristics, it almost I, I, I want to guess and say that he's just doing this for self-amusement, maybe? Which, again, is kind of like what Sabriel suspects about his eating, right? That he's just kind of, that he seems to enjoy it and he's doing it for fun, but he doesn't have to. But, so, 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 so just role play. Right? He's like, ah, what the heck, cat. Let's do cat now, right? Um, it'd be fun to be a cat. Well, fun. Maga doesn't ever seem that much fun, exactly. That doesn't seem quite right. But um, perhaps. But let's kind of approach this from the other end. His other form. Um, we were looking last time at the sort of Maggot as cat, and then Maggot as malevolent free magic elemental who desires to exact the blood price from the abhorsent to free himself from slavery and to do so in the most painful and protracted way possible to torture those who have imprisoned him. This is how he talks, right, in his elemental state. That, is, that you know, he's going to take the blood price and it's not going to be quick and he is really angry for what has been done to him. That's how he talks. Certainly she gets the understandable impression that he's angry. Um, but what do we? And, but we also were looking at that sort of transitional moment when she takes the collar off, and he has been set free of the binding. The binding is no longer operative on him. But that he, in his own words, out of sentiment, still assists her and saves her life. Um, well, what did you notice? Well, it, it occurred to me that like, if he's like elemental free magic, then like what magic is is meant to be shaped into something. And when it's shaped into something, it becomes that. That's how magic works. So if he's just pure magic and shaped into a cat, then he is a cat. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, certainly form imposed on something does seem... Charter, the charter seems to be about 
the imposition of form and structure and order, and that that does seem to have some kind of significance. As you say, that it's not, it's not since I'm in the shape of a cat, I'm going to act like a cat. But he seems to, in many ways, not a real cat, or not merely a cat, but he does, the form seems to matter in that way. And one sort of wonders about the charter ghosts in the same way. Um, that is, one could say, well, you know, they're servants who were designed to be servants, and so they're kind of <coughs> programmed in these particular ways by the charter mages who made them. But Moggett describes them changing over time. That they develop personalities, personalities that are sort of in line with what they, in the, sort of the shape that they're in and the jobs that they do. Um, you know, the old family retainer complaint that Moggett makes about some of the charter ghosts. Um, so that form does seem to uh, be associated with some real kind of change to nature, to, to, to personality, to outlook. We see Moggett, we see or hear of Moggett with his collar off two, on two other occasions in today's reading. We saw the one in the crash landing of the paperweight. When else was Moggett's collar removed? Robin, do you remember? Um, I, think, I might be missing one, but I think when they were running away, when he was ringing the last bell, Astario, yes, the, the bell that he rings, the weeper. Yeah. A person, her dad, seems to have taken Moggett's collar off. It's a very passing reference, and we don't see what he does, Moggett, that is. Um, but as Touchstone is running away, he has this glimpse of Moggett without his collar off. Um, we don't know what's going to happen, but what certainly seems to be the case is her dad has done, this is part of his last stand plan. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to unleash Moggett, or whatever he calls him, and that's apparently, I guess, going to help. Um, when's the other time? Literally, other time, same place, other time. Taylor? In Chester's uh, memory, when uh, the queen and her daughter were yeah, yeah, that momentous occasion 200 years ago when the queen was sacrificed and right before he blacks out and he sees the abortion coming down the stairs with sword and bells and some whirling white light which is really ferocious and Sabriel's the one who figures that out. Right? Remember, uh, of course, the paper wing incident was right before she found Tushan. So Tushan has no experience of Magad other than as cat. Right? So he has no idea what that is. And Sabriel you know, turns then to Maga and says, that was you, wasn't it? That whole white life thing. And Maga confirms it. Yep, yep, that was me. I was there. And so therefore, what do we learn here? What do we learn about him and his collar and the abortions? We, we now see that three, three, three is a trend, right, Marta? Well, I, just, I remember when we were first introduced to Maga, I had the impression that you know, he was bound and never to be released and always yes. kept him. But that's actually not the case. He's really more of another tool that can be used. Um, and he's, and he, the binding that ha- is on him is is self-reoccurring. Like, Moggett keeps it going by coughing up the ring every time. And it's, and it's, I think we're supposed to have the impression that it's been used many times before. Moggett's been used many times before as a kind of tool. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah I, that's, that seems to be pretty clear. Um, at the time, it seemed like a real, you know, when Sabriel was going to, you know, when, he, when they're crashing and he's like, loose my collar, there's a moment where, you know, I mean, I know I'm tempted to be like, don't do it, Sabriel. <laughs> right? But actually, no, I actually know it's not a trap, it's a strategy. In fact, it's a recurring strategy, apparently. Uh, in fact, almost every time thus far, we have seen Adam Horson in extremis, like off with Moggett's collar. That's like not step one, but it certainly seems to be a standard step. Yeah. Um, and as with the, the free magic in the bells themselves, it's something that they, that they can use, but they have to use uh, very carefully because it's so unpredictable. Yeah, that's a really... That's a really great illustration. I think I, I, I was thinking in very similar lines. I think that we can see Moggett as a kind of well, not representative. It's not. Like I, I don't want to like make Moggett a symbol, but uh, but rather certainly as an illustration of you know as 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 as, as we were talking about last time, sort of the way that the Abhorsons are kind of living on the edge, right? The the way that they are um, just as the Abhorsons. I, I exist both in death and life, which is, you know, why they're so pasty. Um, because apparently the waters of death leach the color out of you, right? So this is why we're told he is unnaturally pallid, like a corpse. Um, at the beginning, and presumably Sabriel is too, or at least is developing this. Um, anyway, just as the abhorsons can cross these boundaries, so they are walking the line between free magic and charter magic in ways that most people don't, or at least shouldn't. Just as most people shouldn't go into death or use those bells, which are which whose power is primarily free magic, but constrained uh, by charter magic. Now we see Moggett constrained by charter magic, but the way in which that constraint works is different, and the unleashing of Moggett is different from the use of the bells. And as we as we have seen a couple times, as, as that is as Sabriel has repeated several times. The use of the bells, uh, of some of the bells at least, is a, is a questionable, is a risky thing because they are not predictable. And they, she speaks as if they have a kind of will of their own um, and, and you can't trust them. But it isn't like Moggett, right? That is the uncollared Moggett. But I want to think about this, this Moggett as your option uh, from Moggett's perspective. What does this show us about him? And how does this inform our understanding of his true form and true nature? What do you think? Yeah, Aaron? Well, going off of the memory of Touchstone, and he was attacking the guards, if I remember correctly. So... Even though he's wild, he's wild when he's in his free, unbound state of a fiery column. Um, he's he's still being controlled by the a person in some way. We can imagine if he's being sent to attack the guards. Yeah, and we don't know about control, but we do. You're, what we see is him fighting alongside the person, doing. What apparently the abhorsen would really quite like him to do, uh, just as he does with Sabri, who would quite like him to keep them from plummeting to their deaths at that moment when she takes off his collar. Um, so it's not just that it's if it's 
a weird thing that happens. It's a weird thing that seems to happen all the time. Um, yeah, Christine? Um, I, I feel as though the nature of free magic is, like, like you were saying, wild, but that I'm wondering how it would act if, if it didn't have this sort of idea of revenge upon the aporsin. Like, would it, would it do, like, both bad and good things? Why is it, like, neutral? It, it doesn't, it has no, like, I don't know, alignments or something. Yeah, I mean, we're not told, we're not told that we have very little basis to guess what the free maggot would do after killing the aporsin, right? Paying the blood price and being completely free of his bite. Um, you know, tap dance, obviously. Right, exactly. Some kind of celebratory thing. But what would that sound? I mean, are we talking about like dancing around in a pleasant jig? Are we talking about like, you know, I don't know, like drinking the blood of innocence? And I, who knows? Who knows? You know, retiring off to a quiet cabin. Uh, and we don't know. Um, so it is really hard to categorize. The one thing that we do see. I think the, the one thing that we do is that the two things that we can see clearly are the consistency with which he does appear, at least temporarily, to work with the abortion when the collar is freed, but also the violence of his rage and cruelty when that passes. Right? I mean, he's... he's when he's attacking Sabriel, I don't think we're given a lot of leeway to be like, hmm, is this uh, a malevolent creature or not? Maybe he's just going his own way. I mean, maybe he is going his own way, but and that, I, he clearly, the, the, the extent to which he is savoring the prospect of torturing her to death slowly for, I mean, that's, I don't know. But again, but we don't know what, what it would be like after. Yeah, Dorian? Yeah, in a sense, we're going to take whatever went on just on this part. Imagine you're been catching my activity for over, I don't know how many years, probably millennia, maybe. You're one sometime from the ranch. You're probably some kind of hard to go out early, too. But I think it's more of a kind of force, really. That's where things like harness themselves and use it against our enemies. I don't know that person. I don't know how to do that, but I think it's easily made up. It is a force of nature, really. Well, that seems to be one way in which we can sort of think about it, or one way in which he's used. But again, the difference is he's acting consciously in both cases, in in both of the cases that we see, and in the third, we don't again we don't see what happens down in the reservoir when Touchstone and Savrio are taking off. You know, I I, I guess Moggett has like his moment of I don't know what he does. He takes off the collar and then the bell rings. Between the collar and the bell, you know, is Moggett. What is he doing? I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. My only theory is that his job is to, like, fend them off long enough so that he can ring the bell, basically. Um, but, but my point about his will there, he's not a force of nature in the sense of, like, you know, I've got this violent genie in a box, and I just have to, like, point it at somebody and let it go and plan, like, whatever direction I happen to be pointing, that sucker just, like, fires off, right? He, is, he, he operates temporarily as a conscious ally. And then shifts to a consciously malevolent force seeking to kill the one that he was just helping and protecting. Dorian? Couldn't that be part of the binding, though? 
Possibly, except that the, the, the problem, well, I don't know if it's a problem. The, the thing that I find really interesting about it, though, is that there's no transitional point. There's, that is, there's the taking off of the collar, which is obviously significant and affects the change. There is, we gather from his words, the exaction of the blood price and the death of the abortion, which I presume, I take it, also affects another change. Um, but that the change in his personality happens between those things. And there's no transitional thing, it seems. There doesn't seem to be anything that I can see which sets him, which makes him freer ten minutes after his collar was removed than he was one minute after his collar. Do you see what I mean by that? Yeah. Like, Ron Dobson was on, like, as he put it kind of himself, like, when he's a cat, he's, you know, kind of a aloof, but set of supporter of the asshole, and he's helping out. So I real. When his collar's gone, he kind of, he does a kind of transition. I have all that kind of this. Like, it, it depends on his form. Like, when he's a cat, he's, he's, you know, he's one of the good guys, a bit of shady one, but so good guy. When he's, uh, he's in his true form, he, like, he's, he's raging. He wants revenge, he wants it now. So I think like, the forms, it depends on the form of the way you put it in the future, I guess. Yes, but except in his fiery column form, like the form doesn't change, but the nature seems to. At first, he's helpful and an ally, and then after a bit, comes around and says, actually, I'd really rather kill you. Um, yeah, Jordan? Do you feel that form when I first did the book? Um, I'm not sure how I feel about it now, but I, I think I might have opened it up. Um, it, unfortunately, the strongest piece of evidence we haven't gotten to yet, so I'll leave that out. But my theory is that losing the color tests him to perform one last service of greater magnitude than he can normally perform before he is free. So, for example, halting the hip wings, um, halting the hip wings, you know, descent and, and saving Sacrilegious' last service, and, and, and that's how the, 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 as you put it, nuclear option works. That the old Arab was in 200 years ago said, beat the living snout of Kyogo's agents, and he did that. That's a theory. That's a theory. Though again, it's hard to see how it operates. <coughs> when, because the... Um, it seems a little bit contradictory to say part of your binding is that you are constrained to do something after your binding has been removed. Um, but I agree that that seems to be a fit description of what happens. What I'm interested in, and, and I, I don't think we really were at a full conclusion point here. As you say, there's more to see about, about Magin um, in this book. And in the subsequent books in the trilogy, by the way, Magin is still an important character. becomes a very important character. Though, for the record, I'm not convinced this exactly the same character. Um, I... I don't know. I'm not sure. But it, I, I, I think the character kind of evolves a bit for Nyx between book one and books two and three, which are one unit. But anyway, sorry. That is neither here nor there. Um, I, 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 I sort of, it smells like, it smells like a chronicle of Narnia development, actually. Like, the White Witch is one thing in book one, and then 
you know, later on we get new ideas about, about that. And whatever. It's fine. Um, don't want to push the conclusions about Magad. But again, what I want to come back to is that conflict of, that, that internal conflict that we were looking at within him, when, which starts before the, the collar is removed and seems to, to continue after the collar is removed, and therefore not to be merely a product uh, of the binding itself. Um, but uh, in, in the passages we were looking at last time, and I think we can still see it, but we'll, get, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see more of this and can, can, can continue thinking about this next time. Um, but the form and the will uh, and how those things are connected, again, you know, is Magat, does he just want to be a cat? Um, I mean, apparently he chose it. I, just, I think it, it, it raises some really interesting questions, which, as I say, I'm not quite ready fully to answer yet, but, uh, yeah, Dory? One final thing, um, we really don't know the full side of binding, what like, his terms are, we can't really, um, I guess, make any solid conclusion about Molly, really. Even then, the book, like you said, there's like, ooh, I mean, really, really that shows us, like, what's going on. Yeah. The best way to is, like, I guess, the best way would be, like, someone down him years ago, he just has room to form. He'd be a cat and he'd work for him. Maybe he wants to spend all his mood, I guess, really strikes him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, possibly. Possibly. Matt? Maybe it is a sign that his power diminishes with each successive horses. As the old fantasy cliche that Margaret leads to, that his power wanes as time goes on. And when Sabriel's father was the Air Force, and his power diminished up so he was this tiny little dwarf boy, and then when that Air Force last, his power wane was more, and now he's a cat, like it's a step down. Oh man, so like for Sabriel's granddaughter, he's gonna be like a shrew, he's gonna be a gnat, and then pretty soon it'll be like, you know, it'll be like Mogget the Microbe, They call it out like a laparoscopic procedure to lose Spoggett's collar. I'm, of course, comically over-literalizing your point. <laughs> but, but, yeah. Um, uh, possibly. Yeah, possibly. Though, again, I wonder what exactly, what exactly that weakening translates to. That is, like... Is the is like this Moggit as raging, whirling column of light less potent than the old raging, whirling column of light? Like he's now operating at like two thousand watts instead of twenty five hundred when he's raging, or is it only his bound form that's different, or is it he himself? If if we can define a he himself, his own spirit, his own mind, his own will changing over time. Um, not so expecting answers to those questions. I'm just saying these seem to be to be questions. Well, well, Sabre was less powerful than Orson. Now, but yes, yes. I mean, she, yeah, certainly, and, and, and that's why it's that's a little tricky. Though he does, uh, there certainly is that sense. I mean, I, I do agree with Mac. We do get the sense of at least a, a, a general sense of. A, a tendency towards decline, uh, even just glimpsed in that, like the 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 charter ghosts themselves. Like she can't imagine making something like that. The paper wing, 
Um, you know, the ancient abhorsons were clearly much more powerful and much more sophisticated than, than the current ones. Um, the way in which we learn, for instance, that things like the charter stones and the great stones and the wall itself are these colossal artifacts which can barely even be comprehended, much less to envision making them. Huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They are Entewayar, indeed. Um, the work of giants. It's an awesome Anglo-Saxon work from the Wanderer. Um, yeah, that's very much the attitude uh, that, that the people, the few living people still around in the Old Kingdom seem to have seem to have towards them. This is these are these are the the ancient work of giants that we can't comprehend now. Um, so I mean I think that that's that, 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 that sense does definitely seem seem operative. Though what exactly it means for um, for Magad is unclear. And now interestingly, this is my sort of increasingly desperate attempt at transition. Um, Caragor seems to be at least attempting to move in a different way, right? That is not that decline. He is his power increases over time. Um, so we have reached this critical crossing point as Abhorsen power decreases and Caragor power increases, uh, and now we've reached the crossing point, right? Okay, that's crude. But anyway, it's, it's, that's, that's sort of something like what's happening here. Um, what about Caragor's nature? Thinking even just in terms, in the same terms we were using with, uh, with Mogget, that is, the relationship between form and will and sort of essential nature. What do we see with Caracor? Doran? Oh, well, first question. Is he, is he classified as dead adept? Is he classified as dead? Dead adept is what he's called, which seems to mean that first he's, he's one of the dead. Right, okay, so, so he's, 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 he's dead. What does that mean? Can we define dead? We were talking about this a little bit last time, but especially thinking about Caragor, we have to sort of reevaluate and be cautious with our with our uh, with our definitions. Define dead. I guess in this separation of the spirit and the body, though in his case his spirit is not in another realm; it's in the same realm as his body. Yeah, this separation. Presumably, sort of a, and, and now it can, there, a, a dead thing can be made by bringing the spirit back into the body, right? So that would seem, hey, like this dead thing, look, spirit and body not separated. I agree with your definition in general, but there seems to be something in the connection between spirit and body. Um, again, they can be rejoined and yet life not happen. They can be rejoined and life happen, right? We see this happen with rabbits. We see this happen with infants, right? With our infant protagonist. Um, you can bring the soul back and rejoin it to the body and have the thing be just alive. But other times when you do it, it makes a hand, not, not, not a living thing. Will? I was going to say you could probably classify something that's dead as having passed the first date. <laughs> That creates a problem with uh, uh, bringing things back to life. Like life, life. Yeah, abortion is alive. Uh, and he says that he has, there's a limitation on his life. He's not going to live long. 
He's got exactly 10,000 heartbeats, right? But uh, uh, he's, he's, but, he, but he's alive. He's alive. His body is still alive. Remember, we talked about that last time. That, you know, the Moggett's question, like, you know, is his, is his body still alive? And I love his, how, how, how Moggett doesn't admit he's wrong. Right before he was saying, like, you know, the old Aporson is definitely gone. You're the Aporson now. And she's like, no, my dad is still the Aporson. And then they realize her dad is still alive, in fact. So he kind of concedes and calls him the Aporson Emeritus, right? Uh, but anyway, he, he, when, when they come back from death, he's alive. And he was down in the fourth gate. Um, so, I, so it doesn't seem to be just kind of death geography related, necessarily. Though certainly we know the geography past the ninth gate is a significant threshold. Yeah. It seems that depending on the amount of time that you spend in death, you sort of become assimilated. Because um, uh, Sabriel mentions that she knows that her father is not going to last in life because he's been <coughs> in death so long. And assumably Caragor has been there even longer. So he, he, the clock is ticking on his, his heartbeat count, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, it does. It is because of the the. Well, I mean, his. I was about to say. I, I was going to say his immersion in death, and then I was going to apologize for the pun. But then no, I'm not going to apologize for that because I actually think it's perfectly appropriate. Um, it's we get lots of water analogies and water metaphors, right? Um, associated with that. So anyway, because of his long, long immersion in death, um, he is, his life is, uh, did I say corrupted? That's not right. But anyway, diminished. diminished. Yeah, that's better. Mara? Um, I just actually have a question because so I don't know the answer to it, but if time is the, the key factor, time moves differently in the living world than in the death world. So by which standard is too long measured by? Mm-hmm. A really good question. A really good question. Um, yeah, yeah. And is the only reason Touchstone didn't wither away in death because his body was preserved in the boat? Like, he that's was what he was in death as well. Or he was. He was, wait, he was like crystallized? Yeah, he was Why? I invented a word. Didn't last semester we invent a word for turning into wood? Ligniated. thank you. He was ligniated. See, I knew this had come up before. Yeah, because now petrified, it's made into wood, not stone. So he's, he's ligniated. That was the word we invented. Yeah. Also, lignified. Yeah, well, I, actually, didn't I say lignified is better? Because you, you want the if I in there for the, the making. Yeah. Lignified. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. He's, he's put into a kind of stasis which abhorsen isn't. When they find Touchstone's body, he's a statue. A remarkably lifelike statue, but a statue anyway. Um, something, his, something has happened to his body. Like his body is under magical influence. Abhorsen is in a diamond of protection, but his body is there just in the you know, perfectly normal and run-of-the-mill kind of stasis that a necromancer's body goes into every time. His spirit goes into death, right? That is like frozen over, um, not turned into ice, but just on ice. Yeah, on ice. It's frosty, <laughs> right? Uh, frosty and radiating, radiating cold. Um, 
So basically, what the position that he is in, that his spirit is in, seems to be that of like a necromancer or an abhorsen who goes into that and just stays there for a really long time. Um, and that seems to be different from the kind of the thing that's been done to touchstone. Okay? Maybe the reason that abhorsen has a limited time is because it's still a living thought. Like, he hasn't placed it in some other stasis like Touchstones was, so, like, clearly he probably needs to eat and drink eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one could imagine his, his body itself is possibly in a worse state than Touchstones uh, was upon waking up. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he doesn't mention anything about, like, being real peckish when he emerges. He's got other things on months. Uh, but, uh, but, 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 yeah, I mean, if, of course, we don't see him operating um, for long anyway um, afterwards. But, but, no, I mean, that, that makes sense. But coming back to Caragor, and Caragor is the reason that I wanted to kind of push on this definition of what it means to be dead. And ultimately coming back, Dorian, to your observation of him, the classification of him as a dead adept. On the one hand, he is an adept in the sense that he has necromantic power. I mean, he, he, he got into necromancy, right? One of those sketchy things that he did in his, uh, you know, he, he did some sketchy experimentation in his school days, right? Which apparently included things like necromancy and human sacrifice and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, which is clearly against residence hall policies. But, um, but, uh, but anyway, so he... He, he, he is an adept in that sense. But he is also dead himself. So he would have some of the powers that he has. Like, remember when we were meeting the dead who we now know for sure, and only previously suspected, were under Caragor's control, the hands, the shadow hand, the mordicant, right? Um, when we were being introduced, when the narrator, or Sabrio, was introducing us to them, we were told that these are things that can be made by a necromancer. Right? Like a mordicant can be made by a necromancer, presumably a human living necromancer. But, so Caragor is that, but also is himself one of the dead. Um, so that's, that's my understanding of what dead adept is. Um, and it's not exactly like a subcategory so much as a, like a description of, of, of what he is. So he has this different relationship with death. He presumably... Well, not presumably, we are told. He is like Throck in many ways. What does he have in common with Throck? He is a spirit of a human being who has passed into death naturally and resisted the current, remaining in death for a couple centuries, and now has the spirit independent from his body and has gone back into life. Right. Right, and we see, of course, I mean, obviously he's a big upgrade over Throck. Instead of just inhabiting um, a, 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 you know, a corpse in poor shape, he makes his own free magic construct body, right, to inhabit. Um, there's a very important difference, obviously, in the method or circumstances of his initial death, that is, of his separate, the separation from his spirit, of his spirit from his body, and his crossing over into death. But see, again, notice even that? You say, well, his spirit separates from his body and crosses over into death. Yeah, like Sabriel does all the time. And her dad. Right? Their spirits separate from their body, and the body frosts over, and off they go into death. Um, 
And this is why I think leaning on that definition is important. They also are opposing the stream. They don't go along with the stream. It's one of the things that Sabriel, that's always emphasized by the narrator when Sabriel like, arrives in death, is, whoop, got to be careful, fight the current, right? Don't go along with the current. What do dead things like Throg and Caragor do in death while fighting against the current that necromancers don't do? That's a weirdly specific question, but they uh, consume lesser dead beings to make them more powerful. Yes. Thank you for coming up with the weirdly specific answer to my weirdly specific question. Yes, exactly. Then prey upon other things, right? The power that the necromancers have, well, that the Abhorsen has, we haven't seen any other necromancers in operation, so the power that the Abhorsen has to resist the current and to remain connected with life is different than the the, the only thing that keeps Throck, you know, struggling against this stream by the fourth gate, which you'll remember is where her dad is imprisoned. Um, for, 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 for that long is the life that he gains over others. What is the, what, what, what state is Caragor in now? What is his, what is his, what is the nature of his existence? He's dead. Got his body stashed and his spirit in a construct, but what will happen? What is he, why is, what's he doing and why is he doing it? Christine? He doesn't need to feed off lesser spirits now, right? I don't think. He does. Oh. He does. Not dead spirits necessarily. I mean, in death, it's all you got by and large. Right? Um, spirits of other dead things. Remember, Throck was drawn to Samuel and her strong living spirit. Um, he was hungering for that to support himself. Even when he has crossed over into life, Throck needs that, it seems. Even with the free magic body construct, he. Caragor? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, seems so. Seems so, because we're told this is what this is the explanation that we're given for why he chooses to break the great stones instead of just break a couple of little stones and set up his own little, you know, hood somewhere and live like in quiet evil retirement. Because he wouldn't run out of victims in a local neighborhood. And then he would the highness then die. Uh then he would weaken, I guess. But wait a second. In asking, in talking about why he chooses to break the great stones <coughs> instead of little stones, I've skipped over an important question. Why is he breaking stones at all? Okay. Because um, if everything is the way it should be with the charter, the charter is powerful enough that he's not going to have the power he wants to be one of the greater dead. The charter is, in some sort of deep sense, inimical to him. I mean, it it it, it prevents him from operating. It, it it weakens him. Just as it seems, the broken stones weaken the charter. Weaken Savrio and Touchstone. 
That's, you know, we see their reaction when they approach the great stones. Right, and their their whole their nausea and everything else. Right, they can they can barely take it. We seem to be led to understand that Caragor would have a similar reaction near unbroken stones. That the charter has that has that kind of effect on it. Jordan? I was going to say that um, a comment Matt made a while back about how he, he died naturally is not all true. He treated his body as like, so, uh, as far as we can tell, killed himself in order to become one of them deliberately. He swapped life for power. We're told. Yes. That's the, that's, the, that's the phrase he uses. Yeah, he swamped life for power. He deliberately vacates his body. He voluntarily becomes dead in order to increase his power. And I think that can lead just to a good definition for death. At least, I, I kind of feel like this definition was a cop-out because it's easy to apply, like really easy. But I think it might look cool that by almost everything has a time to die. Yes. And even if... I mean, whether we're getting into, you know, children as God and choosing the destination, or we just the fact that Kira would rebel against the order of the children by choosing his own time and thus placed himself in the category that would send the children as dead. Um, it, could, it could be a, 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 a fact of order, like, it, it, is this the appropriate time and place for this to happen? And if you either place yourself outside that, yeah, free magic and unnatural circumstances, or um, just it's not the right cosmic moment. Maybe. I mean, it seems to be more than a timing issue. Um, but, but I do agree with your larger points about his conflict with the Charter and the way in which the Charter, I think you're very right to point out the kind of increasing quasi-deification of the Charter that we get. Especially in this section, it was noticeable. They start praying to the Charter um, you know, and saying things like, let's hope the Charter preserves us and stuff like that. That is, the Charter is being personified in ways now that the Charter, Charter was not being personified before. But of course, constructs of Charter magic were always being personified. And so that sort of suggests an interesting kind of connection. Um, but anyway, I agree that Caragor in doing what he did, um, as I think it's, there's, there's there's more to it than timing, but it is an act of rebellion against the Charter. It is a deviation from it. It is a sense in which if we see a parallel between the Charter itself and like Moggett's binding, Moggett's collar, um, he's trying to break that binding. I, I don't want to be restricted by the Charter at all. Um, and not even be restricted by life itself. Because even life is a restriction. Because living things grow and weep and die. Whereas dead things can grow stronger if they eat plenty of other things. Right? There's no natural end to Caragor's life. So long as he can stay this side of the ninth gate. This Caragor's existence. Gotta be really careful. Uh, in, in, in vocabulary, talking about this stuff. Okay, for Monday, big finish. Monday being our penultimate class. That's all for this time. For next time, read chapters 24 through the epilogue of Garth Nix's Sabriel. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.